Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. So we've talked about the Dutch protocol a lot. We've talked about WPATH. We've looked at the research, but we do so today with a very important lens that is going to bring a lot of new information to light. We have Genia on today, and she is somebody with a background in analytics in the healthcare system, working with insurance companies to try and identify um, unexplainable symptoms and different healthcare issues. And what she points out is that in addition to understanding the cultural piece and the psychological piece and the APA and all of these things, the way healthcare works in America specifically is what made us particularly vulnerable to the kind of Wild West wildfire that we see with pediatric gender medicine. I think what Genia, she's not only a brilliant, she's a phenomenal researcher, but she brings something extra to research that not many do, which is an insightful way of putting the pieces together to see a big picture. Yeah. And she really does it in this episode, but she does it. She has a talent to put the research together and see the narrative. That's and it right. makes it makes for very compelling listening. Yeah. So let's go ahead and tell the listeners a bit more about Genia. Genia Abruzesi is a healthcare researcher, analyst, and the author of several widely read peer-reviewed publications about pediatric gender medicine. Her papers include The Myth of Reliable Research in Pediatric Gender Medicine, which we talked about with co-authors Stephen Levine and Julia Mason recently, Considering Informed Consent for Children, Adolescents, and Young Adults, and most recently, Current Concerns about Gender-Affirming Therapy in Adolescence. She works with evidence-based gender medicine, SEGM, um, an international nonprofit organization that aims to raise the bar on the quality of evidence in gender medicine with a specific focus on children and young people. Previously, Genia led analytic efforts for a major insurer to identify low-value care and overuse of invasive and non-beneficial interventions. She also developed and led a venture-backed healthcare startup to help patients with medically unexplained symptoms and health anxiety. A lifelong Democrat and supporter of progressive causes, Genia became alarmed when she saw the civil rights argument misused to justify the rapid proliferation and administration of highly invasive gender-affirming interventions to children and adolescents. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, We probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hey, Stella. Hello. Uh, This is a a momentous occasion for me and for you, Sasha. (laughs) Yes. I suppose if I was, you know, when I think about the gender world and I kind of got locked into it a few, maybe five years ago or something, I met so many educated, informed, incisive brains. I thought I'm way out of my depth and I thought, oh, my God, there's so many people who are so knowledgeable. And if I was asked, well, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who knows the most about gender of them all? I would say, Genia. I would say, hands down, Genia. So you're very welcome, Genia, to our podcast. I'm thrilled we're launching you to the world. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I think you've kind of hid your light under a bushel for a long time. You've immersed yourself in the literature. 
you know more about this extraordinary gender literature than mo everyone, I think. And so I, I, I think this might be a, a, a kind of a almost a whipple, whistle stop tour through the whole of the literature are certainly the things that you find interesting and notable and what's important that the public knows. Am I right in thinking something like that? I certainly have read a lot of studies over the last few years, and I do think this field is fascinating and that we really need to understand the entire journey of this field, how it was born, how it came to be where it is, in order to understand what the current issues are and how to go from here. Yeah, and and as we read in your intro, you have a background um, working in the medical industry doing analytics around insurance. And so you have a very particular detail-oriented way that you read the literature that I think is very different from a lot of other people we know. Um, and I'd love to start with, you were describing that even though you were working in the medical industry, you had a personal experience when your son got injured that helped you see something about the way kind of American medical uh processes work that was really interesting. So can we start with this story about your son? Yes, sure. And to be clear, I think what we're seeing with gender right now more generally is international. But I do think that the way that the American healthcare system is structured, the way it's funded and the way it operates provided very significant fuel for the fire that we see is raging now. So I think it's really important to understand it. And you're right. So I have worked in healthcare for a very long time in the analytic roles, but it was really a personal encounter that got me thinking about what's going on within our healthcare system. So my son was probably a four-year-old at the time, and he fell off the monkey bars. And as every mother would uh, sort of see this, okay, no big deal. And then he doesn't move. And then five seconds later comes a shriek. And you know something is really, really bad. And so I ran to him and I saw him and I saw his forearm had a second elbow sticking out from sort of the forearm, not a sight anybody wants to see. And so we immediately picked him up and took him to the local emergency room. And so they, he got some ibuprofen, helped with pain. And then we were stuck waiting to see a doctor for about five hours, which is an experience that I think most Americans uh, are very familiar with, especially yeah. since COVID. And so, you know, it was getting late. It was getting dark. His pain was under control with ibuprofen. And he was getting really hungry. And nobody was coming in and telling us what to expect. And so my husband, I sent my husband off to uh, a burger joint nearby and said, hey, just bring him a hamburger. Um, and so he came back um, with a big hamburger and fries. My son enjoyed his hamburger. And then as luck would have it, 10 minutes later, the nurse comes in and says, well, we've looked at all the imaging and he needs surgery. He needs surgery. It's a complicated fracture and he needs surgery right now. So we're calling the doctor to come in. And we said, fine, you know, that's what needs to be done. We'll listen to the doctors. And so then they started doing the pre-surgical intake. And the first question was, when was the last time your son had anything to eat or drink? And my husband and I looked at each other and said, five minutes ago. And then the nurse looked really dismayed and she said, how come? And 
we said, well, you know, we were here for five hours and he was getting really, really hungry. He's a growing boy. And at which point, you know, she quickly got over it and said, fine, then we're going to discharge you. Go home and just call an orthopedist office in the morning. And I said, wait, so he doesn't need a surgery tonight, urgently in the middle of the night? And they said, well, he, he's eight, we can't do surgery. And I said, wait, so explain again, like, so what, is he going to get surgery tomorrow or what? She said, oh, we, we don't know. Just at this point, we're done with you. And so we went home. He had a nice night's sleep, you know, had a sling. Oh my God. In the morning, we went to the orthopedist who uh, looked at him, looked at the x-ray, and then gave my son one local anesthetic shot and within a split second set his arm into a straight situation, put the cast on it, and we were done. And so we avoided the entire risks of general anesthesia. Oh, my God. Um, the recovery from surgery, the, um, the costs, the tremendous costs that a surgery would have cost, simply because our son ate a hamburger. And so that, and by the way, his arm healed. He's now in his 20s. He's an athlete, a basketball player. There's never been any issue. So what is well, then, yeah, that got us thinking, like, how, why is the American healthcare system, was anybody trying to make money on us? No. The doctor, who, the nurse who said, he, you know, the doctor who said you need the surgery, they weren't trying to think about how to extract the money. But the entire healthcare system in America is for profit. Of course, surgeries bring a tremendous profit margin. And the entire protocol is built in the US in general to prioritize invasive and expensive interventions. Okay. So I, I just, I want to point out like when we talk about gender medicine, sometimes there's this binary created where people say, the rest of the medicine works perfectly and smoothly and everything is great and without a hiccup. But gender medicine has this really weird way of operating. But what you're really describing here is that it's not one nefarious group of evil people or yeah. one particular thing. The entire medical system, the, the healthcare system, just might have been vulnerable to the way gender medicine has gone off the rails. Like it, it was a vulnerability maybe in the system. That's Absol not that atypical. Absolutely. I actually think what's happening in gender medicine is very, very typical and a direct side effect of the American healthcare system. And I say that knowing well that the practice of childhood gender transitions was born in the Netherlands, not in America. But I believe it is the American healthcare system that put this practice, so to speak, on steroids. Uh, it's our for-profit motive that, it, that, that drives our healthcare system. And it would take an entirely different podcast to talk about the, you know, what it is about the American healthcare system that creates these incentives. But in my work, um, you've asked me about my background. In my work, what I did is actually specifically look at these types of situations where misaligned incentives are leading to the excessive use of highly invasive interventions, which, by the way, do not help patients. Typically, they hurt patients. And, you know, we are familiar with a lot of these examples, like, for example, C-sections. Um, one of my uh, projects at work was to look at why 
some practices performed 50-60% of women give birth by C-section. And in other practices, it's 15 to 20 percent. Mm-hmm. And by the way, 15 to 20 percent is what World Health Organization says is the safe range because you don't want to do too few. That means some women will be dying in childbirth and uh, tragically that could have been preventable. But you also don't want to do too many. And yet we have this wide variation. And what it comes down to is uh, nobody really... Is, uh, sets to cause harm, but scheduled C-sections are convenient for doctors because they don't have to wake up in the middle of the night. They're often preferred by patients. It feels convenient. And they're very lucrative for hospitals, so nobody really objects. And so, but but we do know that C-sections are associated with risks. And there's a reason why the World Health Association says you want to be at about 15% and not much lower, not much higher. And so, and also it has to do with training, physician training. So in our data analysis, what we discovered is clinics that were led by, by midwives, but physicians were on staff available for complex cases, were naturally hitting that 15, 20% C-section rate because most births were uncomplicated and midwives are trained in non-surgical methods. In fact, midwives can't do C-sections. And so clinics that were led by midwives naturally resulted in an optimal C-section rate because most births are uncomplicated and midwives are uniquely skilled in helping in uncomplicated births, keeping them uncomplicated. And then for complicated births, they would refer to an OBGYN who is skilled in a C-section, and that would happen. But in clinics that are led by OBGYNs that have no midwives, um, and where the population is more affluent and has a lot of insurance coverage, we see very, very high C-sections rates. And it's in part because it's convenient for everybody, and in part because there is less expertise in how to deal with natural birth situations among OBGYNs as opposed to midwives. So it's a matter of training. If you're a surgeon, you're going to operate a lot more. If you're a phys- So same example with back surgery, right? If you go to a back surgeon, it's very likely that they'll say you need back surgery for your pain. But if you go to a physical therapist, it's very likely that they'll say you need physical therapy for your pain. So there's a lot of different things going on that um, contribute to this. But the American healthcare system is uniquely vulnerable to the prioritization of the most invasive and most expensive interventions. I, I know I'm in Ireland and I know our, the reputation America has is mad about C-sections and mad about ADHD medication. They're the two things that have traveled across the Atlantic that it's a very American thing to be very into both of those kind of, which both seem... I suppose one is pediatric and one is, uh, you know, having uh, to do with pregnancy. Like you say, highly invasive, highly invasive, highly invasive. and costly. But I am, I'm, because I know you know so much, I'm very, very, um, what's the word, keen to get you talking about the gender literature as soon as we can. Because I suppose I think there's so much insight you have into this literature and this literature is so impenetrable for so many people. And I, I hear you about the, you know, the American healthcare system. It was mm-hmm. highly vulnerable, but 
it has been the American healthcare system has spread. It's spread all over the world. So it's it's impacted Ireland. It's impacted England. It's impacted all sorts. I I don't know where to start, but it, it occurs to me that you do have a, a huge amount of knowledge around the Dutch protocol, and that is really I think the HQ, the center of pediatric transition. Would I be right? It certainly started there. It's the birthplace. I would say the headquarters is actually America, but the birthplace is the Netherlands. And I mean, on this, to just kind of um, add on to Stella's comment, on our show, we have covered the Dutch protocol now in many, many episodes. And if you are on our YouTube, you will be able to find a playlist with all the episodes related to the Dutch protocol. And Genia, you have co-authored several papers, including one with Julia Mason and Stephen Levine, who were just on our program recently, and a few other very, very important papers. But, but you are also looking at the origins of the Dutch protocol and the kind of theoretical or philosophical reasons they started in the first place. And that's an area we haven't really covered. I'm wondering if maybe we could start there and then that could lead us almost chronologically into what you learned. <clears throat> Yes, it's, it's a very interesting question about how all of this got started. Because if you think about it, this is a very new field in the big scheme of things. It's a very new field. And when I began to study the Dutch protocol, I really started going upstream to try to understand. So what are the origins of it? And it's actually a really fascinating story. And by the way, I don't claim to be the most advanced historian of gender medicine, I'll just share what I observed by reading the studies. Um, It seems to stem back. So one key notion that I was really struck by is that the very rationale for pediatric gender transition was by the Dutch clinicians, and again, the Netherlands as the birthplace, is that gender transition did not very did not work very well for adults. So it is not that we started doing it to teenagers because it worked so well in adults and we said, wow, this is working so well, so let's just start doing it sooner. It's just the opposite. It was that it did not work very well in adults. And for that reason, the Dutch researchers said, okay, well, maybe we got to them too late let's try this earlier, kind of like as an early intervention, almost like a preventive measure. Gender transition is a preventive measure. What sort of year are you talking when you're saying this? Yeah, so uh, the Dutch began to experiment with youth gender transition in the late 1980s, from my reading of the literature. And incidentally, that was exactly within a year or two of when they published their first ever outcome study of the adult transitioners. And... It was around the same time. And the study of the adult transitioners is actually really, really interesting because what they found is, um, just just if you think about the Netherlands and how this practice developed, um, the practice um, was essentially the first transition in the Netherlands, the first official transition in the, in the, in the Netherlands was actually of a female to male mm-hmm. uh, person. And it was published in the medical literature. Um, in, and it was not 
well received. There are a lot of people that were really, really upset with this process, as it was described. And so the practice was effectively shut down in the 60s. So after it was tried in the 50s, it was effectively shut down in the 60s. Um, and, um, but in 1972, the Dutch national healthcare system began to cover this as a medical procedure, um, and they have a nationalized healthcare system. And so that, in effect, in effect, it really began, it really became launched in 1970s. And so when you think about a practice that officially launches in 1970, because before that, it were just one-off cases, oh. and, and really they were looked down upon, but in the, in the mid-70s, it starts for real, in all earnesty. And so by the late 80s, you now have your early outcomes, only about a decade's worth of outcomes. And okay. a lot of them are just, uh, you know, people who, who've been on hormones for two, three, four years. It's not even a super long-term study, because if you think about a decade, a lot of people are there toward the latter part of that decade. And so when they and, look uh, at... Could I just ask, yeah? when, you're t when you're talking about outcomes, I'm thinking of that Dejna study from Sweden, the long-term outcomes. Are you talking that's about... That's Yeah, I know that's later, but I'm mm. kind of... I'm talking about... Yeah, the, the I'm talking outcomes. about... Are you talking about psychiatric? Are you talking about unhappiness? Yeah. Are you... What, what are, what are yeah. those outcomes? It's the first... So, yes. Yeah, so this is the Netherlands. So Swedish study I know, yeah. is later. This is the... A study from the Netherlands that's published in 88. And it's the, their first look at what happened since they began transitioning, yeah. since the Dutch healthcare system began to pay for transitions. And what they found is, um, it's 141 patients, most are male, some are female, kind of, we know the biological male versus females, yeah. we know that ratio. And a lot of them are just three to five years into their journey. Yeah. At that point. And what they're finding is that the patients are that they can track down are saying that they're very satisfied with that okay. transition. But when they look at their functioning, nothing is getting better. They are and, and by functioning we mean things like being able to maintain employment, having relations stable relationships, or having suicidal tendencies. What what they discover by looking at the adult transitioners is because I'm a nerd, I actually brought some notes, so I'm gonna be looking at them. What they found is that there is moderate to market sense of loneliness in 50% of the patients. Wow. High rates of unemployment, 36% unemployment in trans men and 60% unemployment in trans women. And lack of partner, 33% in trans men and 59% in trans women. So what they're saying is when we look at how these patients are functioning, they're saying they're glad they did it, but they're not functioning very well. Um, in addition, they know that one in 35 trans men attempted suicide and 15 in 103 trans women attempted suicide two to five years after transition. Jesus. And they're saying that the participants' attempts were motivated by psychosocial problems associated with the feelings of loneliness and depression. And so in their conclusions, the authors are very sober. They're saying mm -hmm. this is no panacea, this is not solving problems. Um, there's also an interesting 
dichotomy. They describe how the patients say they're happy or they're glad they did it, but they're not doing very well. And they note that actually when the patients subjectively report that they're glad they did it, there's no relationship about where they're in the transition journey, whether they're just starting, the middle, or they completed. So it seems like just embarking on that journey already sort of gives them a sense of subjective well-being. We're doing something about it. And yet none of the objective measures are improving. And We, we must yeah. one day get people to do... I'd love to see a lot of studies around regret, the psychology of regret, who does regret anything big in life. Yeah. You know, that in, in itself is a whole kind of thought process. Who says, I regret moving to America, getting married or whatever. Usually we just assimilate our massive decisions into our, this is where I am. I'm glad I did it. It made me the person I am. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. But it, it's an interesting point that people don't rest on enough. But what what I what I meant about the the data thing is when I read that long term study, it's a long term study. The listeners might know about it. It's forty years. It's tracking people for many many years. It was released in twenty eleven. The key thing is when you read it, you go, oh, these are unhappy. They're unhappy. There's so many kind of markers around prison and suicide and psychiatric that you think, oh, this is a group of people who are, like you said low functioning or certainly seem to live a lot of unhappy lives whether or not they say it's better I transitioned you can't help but think there's a highly vulnerable group of people and and, you know what's really interesting is that in that adult study the Dutch researchers they're very uh, contemplative of these issues they really think a lot about it and they say how do we make sense of the fact that patients subjectively say they're glad they did it, but objectively are functioning so poorly. And the way, and they even wrestle with how to measure the outcome of transitions. Should it be subjective? Yeah. Or should it be based on the objective measures? And at that point, they decide, or at least they opine, that it really, a lot of weight should be put on the subjective measures. And the way they justify it is they say, is they say, well, the sense of gender incongruence is a subjective right, feeling. Right, Therefore, right. subjective measures of happiness that they're glad they did it should trump the lack of improvement in objective measures. Um, that's kind of where they're leaning. And you see how the philosophy of this group and the uh-huh. same very people that studied the adult transition initiated the practice of childhood transition. So then you see this leap where they're saying, well, clearly the patients are happy they did it. By the way, nobody talks about the huge loss dropout rates because people who drop out may not nearly be as happy. So yeah. there's an, an enormous sort of um, blinder already in the, in the thinking process, a set of blinders. But still, they're saying, well, it seems like it's the right thing because they say they're glad mm-hmm. they did it. Mm-hmm yet they're not functioning well. And that is because we got to them too late. So now let's just go upstream. I want to pause here before we get into that, because there are kind of two big things that I just want to highlight. First of all, we're already aware that both the condition the patient's presenting with and the measures by which we determine whether their treatments are successful or not are all in the realm of the subjective. That is what makes this, I think, so vulnerable to things going off the rails. That's the first thing that's just really interesting to think about. Wow. They came in with a subjective experience 
we're going to treat it with an objective medical measure, but then we also are going to use a subjective determination about the effectiveness. And then number two, the loneliness piece feels really important because yeah, whether or not being medically operated on and taking hormones determines that you will necessarily be lonely isn't clear to me. So I am perfectly um, willing to entertain like a, perhaps an activist position, which is, well, society was probably very rejecting of these people because many of them were male. Many of them transitioned late into adulthood. They probably you know, visibly looked like someone who you can't quite understand what their biology okay. is. And they might have been severely excluded from society, from dating pools, etc. And I'm just willing to entertain that today, people who transition may have a lot more opportunity to find connection and love and socializing. So from that premise, I, I just want to give a little bit of credit to the thinking here. Yeah, I could understand why the researchers thought, well, it's because the aesthetic outcomes were poor that they experienced loneliness and rejection and all these things now yeah i don't think that's the only piece of the story that's why we're here doing this podcast in the first place but i just want to kind of point out that it is weird they tried something it worked terribly and then they're like well let's try it even sooner i think maybe the rationale was if we intervene sooner these people could seamlessly move into their roles as women or men or whatever that was exactly the rationale. And it actually makes perfect sense when you follow it. And so, which is all the more interesting about the fact that the pediatric transition was launched at exactly the same time as yeah. the adult data was being analyzed. And so, and so then as uh, survive constructed the timeline in my own trying to make sense of this journey of the field is um, essentially at that point, the Dutch researchers are saying, and again, it's the same group of people, are saying, all right, let's go upstream, let's do it earlier. But of course, we know that the earlier you go, the more risk you incur, because these are younger individuals. And of course, identity development is actively undergoing in adolescence. So they were very aware of the risks. And so the, the way they justify, from what I can tell, is that they're saying, Okay, there are really two types of young people. So, so moving from mature adults to young people, there are two types of young people that could have gender dysphoria. One is the true transsexual, and that's essentially kind of a diagnosis of hindsight in a way, yeah. uh, right? So they will always be this way, and that will know that true transsexual later. But they are true transsexuals because they'll always be that way. Huh. And then there's just young people with gender dysphoria who are struggling with maybe their sexuality, with uh, their developing bodies, maybe some mental illnesses interfering. So these are not true transsexuals. These, these, you know, what would be called false positives were they to be transitioned. And so the Dutch clinicians then make a very interesting bet they say that they can't tell apart a true transsexual adolescent from just a garden variety gender dysphoric adolescent who is not a true transsexual. And the way they tell the difference is by looking, there are several factors, but the most important one 
is to see when their gender dysphoria began. Okay. If it, and how it developed. So when they're looking at a 15-year-old, if that 15, who is gender dysphoric, if that 15-year-old has been cross-sex, extreme cross-sex identified, so not in the middle, not non-binary, but opposite, extremely cross-sex identified from what they called toddlerhood on, and if their gender dysphoria intensified, persisted, not only persisted, but intensified during adolescence and stayed that way through the first few years of pubertal changes into their body, that will likely be a true transsexual. Anybody who is not like that is not and should not be transitioned. Did they reference any specific information or where they got this arbitrary timeline cutoff thing? Where are they getting this mm -hmm. idea? Great, yeah. So that's the question I've really been trying to understand. I see no evidence that it's ever been studied. It was just an opinion of a couple of clinicians that worked with the adult populations, interviewed them, asked them about their memories. Maybe it was informed by seeing a few adolescents that continued to wish to pursue gender assignment in early 20s. But there is no study. There is no proof. And in fact, my, uh, my assessment of sort of how the age came up. So at first it was more conceptual, like, you know, 15, 16, like there, you know, it has a lot to do with legal, with the laws in the Netherlands. For example, how did the age of puberty blockers at 12 come up? Well, in the Netherlands at 12 is the youngest age a young person can participate in medical decision-making. So instead of saying, if they're still gender dysphoric at 12, they're true transsexual, it was more along the lines of at 12, they can now participate in medical decision-making. Wow. So 12 becomes the age. But actually, when you read the Dutch study, the average child was 15. And 15, mm -hmm. to some extent, makes more sense than 12, right? If you look at a 15 or 16-year-old who's been this way for the last 12, 14 years, it's much easier to conceptually buy that perhaps they would be cross-sex identified for the rest of their life. But that, even that has never been tested, right? And of course, the arbitrary age of 12, that seems to be essentially uh, manufactured, not because of any sort of magic. If you are still cross-sex identified at 12 years and one day, you're a future transsexual. <laughs> but if you're 11 years and 364 days, you know, we don't know yet. You, you, you probably not. Yeah. So I think there's a lot that went into that. There are the Dutch laws that went into it. There's kind of the slippery slope thinking that once you say some of these kids are true transsexuals and some false, it sort of goes, it starts getting pushing down, down and down. And of mm -hmm. course, once puberty blockers were invented, their use was invented for, for this particular condition. Then of course, why would you wait? To 54, 15, of course, you want to get to the early stages of puberty. So it became a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. 
We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. What do you think people need to understand about this? Because people are very interested at this particular moment in time in the Dutch protocol. But it feels like there's some new insights that you've picked up on here. I think it's a really, so I was really intrigued by the Dutch protocol um, as just as a parent living in Portland, Oregon and observing what every parent in the 2017, 18, 19 couldn't help but notice, which which is what Lisa Littman noted. Mm-hmm. Any, any American parent living in a liberal city would notice as entire groups of friends and kids who were seemingly very gender conforming throughout their whole childhood. Uh, suddenly you see them as teenagers declaring a transgender identity, markedly changing how they appear, and a lot of them starting to get medicalized. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the Dutch specifically said, you know, you, you can agree or disagree with them, but they were very explicit that if this condition did not start from early childhood on, do not medicalize these because these are probably not true transsexuals. This is probably some sort of a developmental journey this child is on. Stay away with the needles and the scalpels. Don't touch these kids. Mm. In America, that in, in much of the Western world in the sometime around 2016, 2017, 2018, this became the primary demographic yeah. that began to be treated with this intervention. So that is probably one of the single most important points to understand, not only uh, did something very new happen in the world in terms of young people rebelling against gender and declaring a trans identity in unprecedented numbers, but that is a separate conversation for why that happened and what might have contributed to it. But the treatment approach, which we know is the Dutch protocol, was extremely explicit to say, don't come near these kids with the needles and the scalpels. And yet that's precisely who began to be treated with this protocol. I think that is probably one of the biggest, single most important points to understand. We are treating, with hormones and surgeries, we're treating the very population for whom this intervention was not only not designed, but they were explicitly excluded. They were the very group for whom the... Dutch researchers were clear, this is not the right intervention for them, and yet we're doing it. How do you think that happened, that slide? Because that slide is the kind of key to why us three are here. If if they had stayed in their lane as such and really emphasised, I wouldn't have agreed with it, but it would have stayed very small, like the very, very gender dysphoric child who's gender dysphoric all the way up, who intensifies during adolescence. I don't think us three would even know each other 
if you mm. follow me. It would be just one of those. There's something going on medically there. It's over medicalization. Other options could be tried, but such is life. But instead, they they went into these other these other groups, and like you say, explicitly where they shouldn't have been, and that has caused a huge explosion. And this has caused uh, arguably the entire mess. You know, I think in the future, books will be written when people will think about exactly what happened. It's a confluence of factors. Um, there was a tremendous uh, something happened societally. As every generation rebels against something, the generation of kids that were born in the 1990s and early 2000s decided that gender is sort of their their point of rebellion, gender norms. Mm -hmm. And so something definitely happened societally, um, because I don't think anybody anticipated the sort of explosion of young people that are identifying as transgender. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I also think that the very presence of the Dutch protocol significantly contributed to this explosion, to, to not just the explosion, but the fantasy that you can remake yourself, you can become a different person. Yeah. And um, so I think it's the availability of the Dutch protocol. It's the misrepresentation of the results. And I do want to talk about, you know, once we agree that we're treating the wrong population with that approach, let's go back and actually look at who was treated and what the outcomes were because they were misunderstood. The outcomes were not nearly as good as they were presented. And we can talk a little bit about that. But I think it's it's this confluence of factors. Mm -hmm. Societally, there was this sort of gender revolution happening. And who can explain why certain societal trends pick up? You know, I think that's, that's a very interesting topic that um, others should talk about. But then there was the availability of this intervention that proved to be so desirable that mm -hmm. you can just remake yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, and and there was a tremendous amount of political pressure because uh, in America, insurance coverage for gender reassignment with the, with the Healthcare Act that ensured that every American could finally, for the first time, obtain health insurance and not be excluded. You know, this is called Obamacare or mm -hmm. Healthcare Act. It, it effectively mandated the coverage for gender reassignment as part of that. And that opened billions of dollars of financial reimbursement immediately available. And this is, we're kind of circling back to where we began the conversation, is that the American healthcare system is uniquely designed to prioritize and to really promote the most expensive and invasive interventions because insurance pays for it. And mm. so as soon as it became mandated for coverage around 2014, 2015, when Obamacare became a thing in America, it was a really big deal, uh, we see, perhaps not coincidentally, that enormous rise in trans identification because now you can actually do it. You don't just dream about it. If you show up and you ask for it, you get it, and it's completely paid for. Yeah. I've heard you in the past talk about something which I didn't fully understand, which is that the American uh, healthcare system regarding health insurance functions based on just the volume of money being pumped through the system in a way. Like, I think a, a lot of people, myself, not very educated on this, tend to think that, you know, there may be pharmaceutical companies that have incentives and things like that, but it's actually much more nuanced in that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think this is so key 
it's like this logistical bureaucratic almost thing that is hard for us to understand when we're so focused on the cultural lens. So what's really interesting in the American healthcare system, and by the way, if this becomes too boring or too technical, just stop me. But um, the, um, so think about a healthcare system as a car with features. So the European uh, car, AKA healthcare system, comes with very, uh, with its own set of, like there's an engine and their brakes, right? Uh, the engine is the advancement. Everybody wants to deliver better care, make patients healthy. It's healthcare innovation is always the engine, right? The question is where the brakes come from. In in most European countries, um, Europeans are lucky to have their healthcare needs to be considered a basic human right and fully met by the government. So nobody forgoes treatment because they don't have money. But the way that Europeans are able to do it is because they have federal at the federal level, or I guess at the government level, they have agencies that continuously evaluate healthcare innovations for uh, their adhere, you know, for, for their effectiveness and efficacy, cost effectiveness, a range of measures, right? And so this is where they could decide, well, this looks like a promising innovation, but the data is too shaky. It's really expensive. The technology, this drug is very expensive. It's not better than the existing drug. We're not going to cover it. Or this surgery, it looks like it's promising, but it's not proven yet. And we're not going to cover it because there's a limited pool of money and you want to cover everybody. So you have to prioritize interventions that are evidence-based. Uh-huh. And there's no surprise that the UK is one of the first in Finland. We're one of the first countries to start looking at it is because there's a very strong mechanism. There's a government agency that understands what evidence-based medicine is, understands how to ev- evaluate healthcare innovations that are always coming. Yeah. Um, and how to say, okay, this has proven itself as not beneficial, strongly not beneficial. And so we're going to start covering it. Or this is, this is not convincing sure. and we're not. Uh, in America, this does not exist. In America, the only, so the innovation engine is always revving. I mean, it's, it's even stronger than anywhere else. America is really the hub for innovation. So many pharmaceutical companies are coming with new drugs. Surgical equipment manufacturers are coming with new equipment. You know, procedures are, are being invented and improved and enhanced. The only entity that truly says, well, because we can't do everything, right? I mean, this becomes not sustainable. Um, The only entities that typically try to decide what should be covered or not are insurance companies because they are responsible for maintaining a financial bottom line so that nobody runs out of money. But the average American doesn't actually pay for their care. They just pay the insurance company and the insurance company ends up deciding. And so that and that used to be my job, right? The insurance companies are very focused on saying, all right, all these innovations are coming at us. Which ones are we going to cover? Where is the evidence? Okay. Do we agree or not? But in case of, um, in case of uh, treatments related to gender, American insurance companies lost the ability to pump their brakes when the Healthcare Act effectively mandated that these interventions are covered. So the insurance companies really couldn't do anything at that point because effectively would mean going to court and probably losing case after case. Uh, 
But secondly, the insurance companies don't terribly mind this. And Sasha, I think that was your question. Because insurance companies pass through money, right? They take the money, uh, the premium money, which is what we pay every month into it. And then they hand it out to the doctors, the therapists, the drug companies. And the way they stay in business is by charging a margin, let's say a 20% margin on their services. So in some way, a lot of people have been asking, well, where are the insurance companies? Why are they not looking at it? There are two answers to this. One, in a way, their hands are currently tied by the legislation, by the laws that were passed that they're vague enough, but generally they suggest that you will lose as an insurance company, you will lose if you go to court over not covering this procedure. Okay. But on the other hand, actually insurance companies do make money on it because once they know this is coming they can price for it everybody's healthcare costs go up just a little bit but collectively generates the extra two or three billion dollars that this probably now costs in the american healthcare system so everybody pays a little bit more the money pool is created they calculate it they factor it into the pricing and then the total dollar amount that passes through the insurance company just increased and mm-hmm. so they're 20, if, you know, if they keep one fifth of a pie and the pie got bigger, well, their yeah. slice got bigger. So they only mind it when they're surprised. When it's just happening, the insurance companies could lose money because they didn't anticipate this expense and now they're being forced to pay for it. But by year two, they adjust, they raise everybody's prices and everybody pays. So is it fair to assume then that if insurance companies and and the you know healthcare act mandated detransition procedures as well that we'd see a similar pattern like maybe an initial shock factor but then quickly readjust so that the 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 way to get the surgery and the revision surgery and the detransition surgery are all just part of this very easy process like is that a fair assumption I think detransition is such a new field in medicine that just like with transition, only a handful of people knew how to do it. Yeah. And over the last 10 years, an enormous workforce has been trained up in delivering it. And by the way, the more of a certain kind of provider you have, the more of that care will be delivered. That's a known, uh, that's one of the known factors in healthcare. It's called supply sensitive care. The more back surgeons you have in an area, the more back surgeries you get. The more transition Hmm. doctors you have in an area, the more transitions you'll get. Similarly, if the financial mechanisms are released in a way that detransition is covered, uh, we will absolutely, and destigmatized, because now you can hardly say the word detransition without being canceled. And activists really relabeled it into retransition to confuse everybody at this point, because some people actually do go back and forth and some don't. But um, yes, I do believe that it's just basic economics. If, if these services are uh, both mandated and protected from stigma and from claim, from threats that you might lose your license for doing this sort of work, then of course there would be a lot more providers learning to specialize in it. And they would likely be more detransition as well. Yeah. Where do you think, I know this is a huge question, but sure, why not? Where do you think this will all end insofar as, you know, it feels like Europe could go with your analysis, and I actually think it anyway, 
Europe could easily go one way and America could go the other way. I I often feel that Europe is pulling out of it and America could easily go by the way of, you know, transition could fall into the abortion gun laws kind of territory that will run for decades. Where do, what What's your own analysis of it? I agree. I think each country will take a somewhat unique journey out of it. I do think what goes up must come down. You know, this is not sustainable. Exponential increases in young people, um, not just identifying as transgender, but being met with the narrative that they, the transition is the only way for them or even a successful way for most. That's not a true narrative. And I do think things will stabilize. I do think that Europe um, will find its way out of it in the way that we're already seeing through public health authorities doing what they know how to do very well in every other area of medicine. This is not rocket science. Evidence-based medicine is a relatively straightforward field. You evaluate the evidence using systematic reviews. You rate the evidence for quality. You look for bias in studies. And most gender studies um, are extremely biased. And so to date, no study has ever been able to show any credible benefits. And that's the finding of every systematic review. Once you know that that is the case, there is only one path forward is to roll that back, which is exactly what's starting to happen in Europe. Wait, now, you, in you said a very big sentence there. You said no systematic review has ever showed it. Could you just rest on that? Showed any credible benefit? Just it's a hell of a sentence to run through. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's really been lost in America and um, is now Europe is finding its way out in this way is that evidence-based medicine rests on three fundamental principles. And the first principle is that you should base your treatments on the results of not individual studies, but the entire body of evidence. And that is done through systematic reviews of evidence. This is very different from what's happening in America today, because every week you see another study proves gender transition. Here's another study proves depression is reduced, suicide is reduced, suicidality is reduced. That's not evidence-based medicine. Studies are notoriously unreliable. Individual studies are notoriously unreliable. Studies that come out of gender clinics have additional sources of bias, intellectual bias, sometimes financial bias. But even, even studies that are done that have not of those external sources of bias, that are small sample sizes, where follow-up is very short, where a lot of patients fall out of the study, um, they are very unreliable studies. And so what systematic reviews of evidence do, you could think of them almost like a lie detector test for studies. They sort of, they uh, put each study through the ringer, right? Okay. First, they look for every available study out there. They don't just cherry pick. Mm -hmm. They say, if our question is, what, what is the effect of puberty blockers on adolescents? 
then they look for every study, not just the studies that have the results they like. That's the first step of a systematic review. Now, the second step is they don't just take the study and the author's conclusions or the abstract, which which is very convenient, you know, to do. But that, that that's not what they do. In fact, every systematic reviewer worth their salt will throw away the abstract and the conclusion. They want to look at them or the discussion section. They go straight for the results section and they look at the results and they really scrutinize the results and how those results were arrived at. And they scrutinize each study for multiple sources of bias. And a bias is not just sort of intellectual or financial bias. Sometimes bias is just purely methodological bias. It means is is the way the study was conducted, is there something about the way it was conducted that produced a result that doesn't represent the truth? And that, and then systematic reviews do this to every identified study. They use this very special approaches, rigorous reproducible approaches to analyze each study for these multiple sources of bias and they essentially rate each study. And then they combine everything and issue an overarching judgment about on the totality of the evidence, what do we think about this intervention? And specifically to puberty blockers, every systematic review to date has concluded that the evidence of benefits is highly uncertain. Okay, for cross-sex hormones, the systematic reviews of evidence are ranging from, there might be some small benefits, but they come with very significant risks to Again, highly, but, but to maybe risks are greater than benefits. So, some, you know, there's a little bit of disagreement in, in, in how these studies are ranked, but, uh, or rated, but by and large, it is either the benefits are not credible or the risks outweigh the benefit. So this is not a positive result. When we say that the risk benefit ratio ranges from uncertain to unfavorable, Right. And when the outcome of the intervention, as it is described by the endocrine society, is sterility, right? Yeah, if you take a yeah. child at early stages of puberty, do cross sex hormones, and the child is already uh, chemically sterile. And then if you proceed with surgery, it's surgical sterility. So when the costs are so, tr the risks, they're not even risks, they're expected outcomes are so profound yeah. and so profoundly negative. But the benefits essentially are uncertain to non-existent. No healthcare system is going to endorse that this intervention be the first line of treatment or the second line of treatment yeah. or the third line of treatment. Some may say on an exceptional basis it could be done. Others might pull it into clinical trial settings. But this will not, this intervention will not be, in my opinion, a standard medical intervention offered in most of socialized healthcare systems because they have to make the same decisions for every treatment, not just this one. Uh, and those are very consistent decisions. When it, when the risk benefit ratio is unfavorable, this is not going to be a covered routine treatment. In America, it's going to go in a different direction. Well, can we ask about that? Because one of the most kind of progressive countries pushing for the inclusion of gender medicine is Canada, which is a socialized healthcare system. So 
I, I imagine that another puzzle piece here is the, the social pressure for what is, you know, it, it can't possibly just be a financial calculation because there are other factors here. So given Canada as this like weird example yeah. that doesn't quite fit, you know, that paradigm, can you explain what might be going on there? I think you've put your finger on it. I mean, Canada is a very interesting situation because culturally they're extremely influenced by America. I mean, more, I mean, I think America has a strong cultural influence around the world, but, but in Canada, uh, it is felt most intensely. So culturally they're like America, but in terms of how the healthcare system is organized, they're a lot more like Europe. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Canada is going to be somewhere in between. So we talked about how likely Europe will resolve this issue. Maybe we can very briefly think together about how America might resolve this issue. And then Canada, I think, is going to be somewhere in the middle. And so in America, I don't have any hope that this will be dealt through medical societies suddenly understanding that they need to adhere to evidence-based medicine. Um, I hope this would be the case. I had hoped that this would be the case. By now, several systematic reviews came out. They were widely discussed. Uh, and still, medical societies are doubling down, pretending these reviews oh, don't God. exist, and seemingly acting like they don't even know what evidence-based medicine is. Because American, the American Academy of Pediatrics is refusing to do a systematic review of evidence, and every time they're asked why, they're saying, well, because you know we have studies that show it works. Well, the whole premise, the number one principle of evidence-based medicine in the textbook of evidence-based medicine says, do not, literally the first principle says, do not rely on individual studies, use systematic reviews. Mm -hmm. So when we have entire medical societies developing amnesia about what evidence-based medicine is and the, it's first and most fundamental principle, I don't think it's because they don't remember. I think there's too much political pressure on them and I don't think they feel like they can afford oh to. God. And so I don't think it's going to come from medical societies, but I am very hopeful that it is going to come from parents because I think parents are starting to understand that just like when I listened to the doctor in the emergency room who told your oh, son yeah. needs surgery and I never questioned, well, does he need surgery? Are you sure? I just said, of course, you say mm-hmm. it. I trust the doctor. Most parents who supported gender transition bought into the narrative that if their child is gender nonconforming, extremely gender nonconforming, that means they're transgender. That means they'll always be suffering. And transition as early as possible is their only chance for a happy life. That is literally what parents were being told. And they were even routinely told that if they don't do it early enough, then the child will be at high risk of committing suicide. So parents used to listen to the doctors without any questioning for a long time. I think now parents are waking up. They're learning, you know, because of the work you are doing, because of all the debates that are currently happening. Average Americans are learning that this, perhaps this is another area where doctors didn't quite get it right. So I think the awakening will will come from Parents, because parents love their children, 
parents who are transitioning their children don't love their children any less than parents who are saying something is wrong here. It's just two different mindsets. I, you know, I, some people are trusting. I hear you about the parents. I think there's great power in the parents. And I think people listen to parents because, you know, they're, they're one of us as such for so many people. I'm surprised you're not saying the detransitioners because most people do. I think parents are listening to detransitioners and this is giving them credible okay. evidence that the doctors might have been wrong. Got it. Got it. Right. Um, I think the laws that are happening in America, some of them are quite draconian, others are more reasonable. But in, in, in these laws are being passed as a result, in my opinion, as a result of medical societies refusing to engage. Yeah. And so when the, the, those when insurance companies can't pump the brakes and medical societies are refusing to pump the brakes, then elected representatives begin to slam the brakes. And so, um, and so whether you, you know, support these laws or oppose them, I think some of them are very, very harsh. Others are quite reasonable. The, um, it is general, whether or not you like these laws or hate them, agree with them or disagree with them, you can't argue with the fact that they're generating a lot of exposure for the topic, yeah. a lot of debate. And a lot of what we're talking about today is starting to be talked about among it's sort of the knowledge is starting to spread that not everything is great in this area of medicine. This we might be in the midst of one of a very significant medical scandal, perhaps something that might even dwarf the opioid epidemic in hindsight. And so I think the average American is starting to get a sense that not everything is the way they've been told it is. Yeah. And so I think as parents become more cautious and understand that a referral to a gender clinic is not a referral for a thorough assessment. It's the beginning yeah. of a transition journey from which almost nobody gets off that train once they come into the gender clinic. They will be cautious. Um, I think a lot of pediatricians who, you know, among clinicians, it's very common to, dele to uh, delegate and um, trust their colleagues. You know, it's very common when you go to a doctor, your primary care doctor will say, you know, I don't like this lump. Go see a specialist yeah. and they'll fully trust what that specialist yes. says. I think a lot of pediatricians, when they see a very, a very gender nonconforming child and who up till now sort of been educated and thinking, well, that this means this child will suffer for, for a long time. They need to be transitioned, but maybe they don't. And they say, all right. I, I'm noticing there's a problem. I am referring you to a specialist, just like they would refer a diabetic patient to an endocrinologist, pediatric endocrinologist for diabetes. They very confidently are referring their gender diverse yeah. children to gender yes, clinics, yes. thinking the same kind of thorough analysis will happen. And of course, an endocrinologist isn't going to give insulin to a child who is non-diabetic. Of course, they're not going to transition yeah, a child yeah. who is not truly transgender. Mm -hmm. Once the knowledge begins to spread that when you're referring your patient to a gender clinic, it's you're basically, it's a one-way track. Yeah. They will not get off of it. The clinicians in gender clinics are pretty committed to transitioning. So if a child says they want to transition, the parent supports it, the transition is happening. You know, then pediatricians will start getting more cautious. I think like the initial pressure will come from parents who are, love their children and want to do the right thing. I think medical professionals will start kind of listening more. 
I think the lawsuits that are in, you know, that are coming, we know they're coming, are going to raise the visibility of this issue. So I think America will solve it in a very unique way. And I think there'll be a lot more collateral damage. It'll take longer and there'll be a lot more collateral damage. But I do think some equilibrium will be restored. It can be sometimes interesting to look at it as a cultural war and a medical war. And I often think in Ireland, it's very different. The medical wars is really, it's the medical issue isn't as heightened in Ireland. The cultural war is massive in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And sometimes dividing it that in Ireland, it's very noticeably different. So a huge amount of social transition is happening. Not a huge amount of medical transition is happening. Huge amount of silencing and, you know, very woke but the medical thing. So I I think that's a better solution. Let's go for, let's go for, you know what I mean? So what if there's a culture war, frankly, so long as there isn't a medical damage being done? I, I think it's a better, yeah. Well, you know, what's really interesting is when I was reading um, the, again, the early Dutch studies about where they talk about these gender nonconforming children and their development pathways, they're, they're always very clear that, the greatest source of distress, the, the main source of problem with a gender diverse or gender nonconforming child is the distress that these children feel. I mean, this is sort of what we're, this is why this field was really stood up, is to help alleviate distress. And they say that the number one cause of distress is peer rejection. Children can be very, very cruel. Mm-hmm. Children are very... Uh, naturally uh, uh, rejecting of people who are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we all know that. And so it's the gender non-conforming children uh, who've always existed. This is not a new problem. The little child, the little boy who wants to be a girl, wants to dress like a girl, has always existed. And the real problem was that these children were uh, teased, bullied, yeah. and really had a miserable time. Yeah. And so... And so the interesting thing is that when we talk early on about the rationale for child transitions is they, they really try to fix those children's appearance yes, to make, exactly. to make them less of a target for bullying, less of a target for, you know, all of this discrimination. And so at that time, that actually probably made some sense. But, but, you know, and when I think about gender transitions, I sometimes think of what's happening right now as a bit like a wildfire analogy, because it is certainly raging like a wildfire. It certainly spread like a wildfire. And nobody really likes fires. They cause a lot of damage and a lot of harm. But there's something really good that comes from a wildfire also, and that clears the ground and allows new forests and new growth to come in. And so firefighters still fight wildfires they don't they don't say okay just go ahead and rage but we also recognize that there's value in those wildfires and to some extent i think that what's happened in the last 5 to 7 years on the one hand it was a wild it is a wildfire that i do believe caused a lot of damage to young people and it's tragic but at the same time the benefit of what happened is that's we do have a different society now and a different group of young people who are very accepting of gender nonconformity and among their friends, in some ways celebrating it even. Yeah. And yeah. so the very rationale 
from oh, yeah. 30 years ago has gone away. We used to change these little That's non-conforming children so the peers mm-hmm. wouldn't pick on them. And in the process of all this enormous mess that happened, the good thing that happened, actually, is that we now have an entire generation of young people that don't think gender nonconformity is weird, that like it, that celebrate it. And so in some ways, the very rationale went away. And perhaps we can just move on and now just let these children be and they will thrive. Yeah, that kind of touches on what we discussed earlier about how currently anyone who has transitioned or anyone who is gender nonconforming probably finds much more support and acceptance than they did when they were first experimenting with these things in the 70s and 80s. So that's a that's a good point. I mean, I I think this has been a very important discussion. And um, I know you work with with Segum and that is really, I think, the most important place that people can go to get very clear information about the science, about the research, about the studies, about what we know and don't know. So we'll make sure to point people in that direction. Is there anywhere else you would want people to to look um, in order to see more about this? Of course, all your papers will be included in the links. I think your podcast is wonderful. I think reading about this topic, if people have time, um, is important. I do think it's a good idea for people who are interested in this topic to recognize that there's a really big problem in the studies in the field. Yeah. And SAGM was formed in part in order to address this issue. There, sometimes you just need to read the study to understand what it says. But other times what's needed is almost forensic research. Studies that are coming out of the gender medicine establishment are not just low quality because the sample size is small and the the follow-up isn't long enough or the dropout is high. There is a really significant problem going on where the studies are spun to sound, to represent results as though the results are positive when actually the results are sometimes very, very negative. We see this with the latest NIH study that came out that showed in previously non-suicidal youth after a year on hormones with 50 times the rate of suicide, uh, completed suicides. And somehow that study was spun as a really positive outcome. We see that in so many studies that are coming out. So I think just having a healthy degree of skepticism the next time you see a study that says, well, here's another study that proves gender transition works. I would say a fair degree of skepticism, never say never. Maybe one day we will have a study that shows a reliable, credible, positive result. But to date, multiple attempts to demonstrate it every time ended in the same conclusion. Studies that report improvements are found to be not credible and long-term studies, the highest quality studies with the longest term outcomes, signal problems. So I think just having a healthy degree of skepticism and recognizing that probably the systematic reviews of evidence are accurate. At this point, probably we know the answer. And the answer is, on the one hand, these young people are very happy in the moment that they have access to these interventions. And individually, there could be some remarkable stories of turnaround. 
But at the population level, time after time, we see either no improvement or more harm than good. And if that is indeed true, and that has been demonstrated time after time after time, which is why so many European countries are now turning around, if that is indeed true, then what do we do in America now, now that we know this, how do we put the toothpaste back in the tube? I think that's the real question. Yikes. Frightening. Well, when we do our toothpaste tube series, we will try to answer those questions. <laughs> it, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's an exact, exactly profound and correct summary. Well, I know. Genia, thank you so much. We're so glad to have your insights on the show. Somebody we would have probably had on many, many years ago, but now is a great time. So thank you for joining us. Thanks again for inviting me. It was really fun to talk to you. Oh, thanks, Genia. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.